Good morning, Memphis. Uh, it is another beautiful day here in the Mid-South, another beautiful Saturday morning, and it's always a beautiful morning when we can spend some time together. I'm Sana, and you're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Every Saturday morning, I'm joined by experts from across the country who are investigating our most pressing social issues and common curiosities. Over the next hour, we'll learn about their motivations, inspirations, and of course, what they know about the world around us. So grab that cup of coffee and get ready for a fun and insightful conversation. George Washington Carver. What came to mind when I said this pioneering agricultural scientist, inventors, and professor's name? Was it the peanut? I'm betting it was the peanut. <laughs> now, Carver may be known for his creation of over 300 uses for the peanut, but planting peanuts was part of his focus on crop rotation, a practice that improves soil health and its productive capacity. Now, Carver's system for disseminating his university's research to farmers later became institutionalized as a nationwide program known as the USDA's Extension Program, which is still in existence today. So we have carver and crop rotation, but also this very important system for disseminating information to farmers. Yet Black farmers have largely been systematically excluded from land ownership and their contributions to farming practices marginalized. Now, for longtime listeners of the show, you know that we've mentioned the importance of community, sustaining the local environment, and we've made some passing nods to Black farmers as well. Now, more recently, we've seen growing attention to Black Americans' impacts on agriculture, foodways, and culture. For example, the recent Netflix series, High on the Hog. So you know that I am beyond excited to actually get all up in this topic <laughs> this morning with today's guest, Gerald C. Harris, my friend and fellow U of M alum. Now, Gerald is one of the trio behind the Tall Grass Food Box, a Durham and Raleigh community supported agriculture platform to support and encourage the sustainability of black farmers by increasing their visibility and securing space for them in the local marketplace. Additionally, Gerald is the Senior Director of Campus and Student Engagement for Duke Alumni Affairs at Duke University. Welcome, Gerald. It is a pleasure to have you here with us. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate that and I love the intro. Uh, you know, this doesn't happen often for me, so uh, I definitely appreciate this, this opportunity to talk with you, to talk with friends just yeah. about what's going on, what I do, and and other things. So this is cool. Yes, we are so excited to have you. And you know, I am, you know, I'm really in awe of everything that you're doing in, um, in your community, right over the past, I guess, few years, whenever it was that you moved yeah. <laughs> um, to this job at Duke, and just seeing how involved you've been in the community in a variety of different like arts and kind of culture ways. And so when I first saw you talking about this CSA, I was like, of course, like it just seemed a natural extension <laughs> of the many ways that you are really investing and I think amplifying um, and bring together the community there. So I'm just so impressed. And again, just so in awe of everything you're doing. Oh, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, it's been, uh, she's uh, five years now. Um, it, feels, it feels like I just moved here yesterday. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, it's been five years and um, it's just really, dope houses, how I've been able to find community within a space um, as, you know, not having family in the area, um, but um, but just being kind of new to this space and, and finding community and path to community engagement mm -hmm. uh, just throughout. Um, it's been really, really neat. Um, came here with, at the time, my partner, now my wife, um and um she's from raleigh from the triangle area but uh yeah uh being able to to, to kind of get here and plant in a way that i haven't been able to to navigate and find community and probably any other place outside of memphis 
mm-hmm. um, um, which seems so long ago uh, <laughs> at times. Um, but yeah, and so that was really cool just to kind of be able to find some day ones and still working with day ones, which is one of the cool things about Tallgrass Food Box is that uh, one of my partners was literally the first individual I met when I moved here. And so it was, and, and so to be in community with this person and working uh, in a place of not only passion, but trying to find solutions um, for our community around Black agriculture, uh, self-determining economies, um, Black food sovereignty. And so just trying to play our part within this whole larger scale has been really, really fun um, to find our space and be nimble and find ways as we evolve and expand based on the needs of the community that we serve. Mm-hmm. Yes. Oh, you've said a lot of little nuggets there that we're going to like tease apart a little bit as we spend some time together this morning. But let me just start here. Um, first, just tell, could you tell our listeners what Tall Grass Food Box is? Just give us some basic information about what it is and maybe even how it started. Yeah. Um, so Tall Grass Food Box, um, um, as said earlier, it's an organization that supports and encourages sustainability of Black farmers um, by creating opportunities for them to sell their produce in a local marketplace. Um, this, this entity, this mission, this movement was founded uh, right around the beginning of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you know, businesses were shutting down, um, um, we understood how um, vulnerable um, some of our small businesses are, um, um, especially our Black businesses. And as we start to look at, you know, business structure within, you know, our restaurants and things of that nature, we started to look at the bigger picture of what does this mean for uh, supply chain. And so when we started to think about supply chain, the first thing that popped up was the farmers that we were already in community with. Um, And I can talk a little bit about that too. Um, And we felt that there was a a need to reach out and ask those questions. Um, And it gave us an opportunity to look at how can we present them in a marketplace that has in a lot of ways shut down for them. Um, and so it was important for us to try to figure out those ways of doubling down and support. And so we brainstorm around what would it be like to form a CSA? And so uh, CSA, uh, for those out there, uh, stands for Community Supported Agriculture. Um, a lot of us have been working around, like a lot of us have seen CSAs in so many different ways. Um, uh, throughout our lives. I know with me growing up um, in Little Rock, Arkansas, but spending a lot of time on the farm. I'm, I, I am um, a farm kid. Um, so um, my, um, my father grew up on a farm. And so um, I've been around, you know, knowing and understanding where my food comes from for a very long period of time. Mm-hmm. of my life um and so my papa was the melon man um so he was the guy uh that and so we so the farm was in Calhoun County a little bit outside of Fordyce Arkansas uh which is a, a, a hour and some change to uh, a l- little bit more to the uh the um state line of Louisiana um and um so my papa was uh he was probably the first social entrepreneur i knew mm-hmm. um he uh sold watermelons in the summertime i remember him loading up the truck and driving to kind of the outskirts of what downtown Fort ice was which <laughs> is like a block of businesses <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
uh, that just maybe what maybe about 15 years ago got a a, a street light, you know, <laughs> and so um, being able to be there with him and watch him not only um, support his community, um, you know, there's sometimes, you know, you see people walk up and get watermelon, but you don't see any exchange in money. Um, and, um, but you, and you saw how respected my papa was in the community. And that's something I carry every day. That's something I carry within this work, like with Tallgrass Food Box. Um, but yeah, and so I've always had a space in a foot in agriculture in a lot of ways. Um, um, not really understanding what I wanted to do with it until like later on in life, you know, um, and kind of understanding the play on land and uh, what that means uh, to a community. Um, a great example of that is um, I just think about even when I was in college, you know, when I was at the University of Memphis and um, at that time, highly involved in um, the Benjamin Hooks Institute for Social Change. Also, you know, being a, a uh, being somebody that um, studied and researched through African-African American studies, I spent a large portion of my senior year actually in a project down in Tent City and talking to people around just the aspect of land and accessibility and things of that nature. And um, it was um, very eye-opening um, for me as um, somebody still trying to figure it out and understand even my, my, grand, my grandparents walk within agriculture and the struggle, not only the struggle, but also what the meaning of land was in an idea of inheritance. Um, and so the more and more I learned, the more and more I wanted to be, to find my way to being closer to the land and black agriculture. So moving on, I've, you know, lived in Memphis seven years, uh, then started working in Milwaukee and Marquette. Mm -hmm. um, and then the Texas A&M, which was a very interesting place for me. Um, uh, a, a large part of it is that, you know, from, you know, being a Black man in this very white space, uh, but also seeing big agriculture for probably yeah. the first time, like to be at a school that's an ag school and... Um, not only a land-grant institution, but also have this very premier agricultural institution within this space mm -hmm. and understanding more about ag business. One of the things I also realized within this space is that I didn't see us within those spaces of agricultural business, things of that nature. I saw all the farm kids coming to school <laughs> to get these degrees. Um, some of these degrees are like, they don't even want, they're just doing it so they can continue on with the family business, but then you start to talk to them and understand how much financially these institutions, these farm institutions were from a financial standpoint, from a um, from an economy standpoint, how much they were pumping out on a annual basis. Yeah. And it just blew my mind. So, um, you know, working in those spaces, uh, even at the time working in some alumni development work there, you kind of get to see like that big picture, um, which was extremely surprising. It wasn't surprising to me more as it was shocking to me on how overtly white the space was. Mm -hmm. and how it was this club that only very very few got in mm -hmm. um but you know taking that interest taking that information and and at that time bottling it up and um 
carrying it with me to Durham, the Durham area, which the thing about Durham that I appreciate and is one of the same things I appreciate about Memphis is Durham is a very black community. Like when I say I was so excited about around being just around black folks at that time, uh, which was cool. Like it was, you know, I didn't have to go look for my community or look for the spaces where I identified with. Um, and um, that's where I actually met Derek Beasley, uh, who's one of my partners in Tallgrass Food Box. Um, and um, he was he's he was very connected to this group called Black August. Well, he was actually a co-founder of this group called Black August in the Park, mm-hmm. um, which um, they have presented programming and initiatives uh, that centered around Black identity, Black joy, um, Black space and taking up that space mm-hmm. um, un, un, unapologetically. Yeah. Um, and so I uh, got very, very involved in Black August in the Park, and there was an opportunity out there where Derek and I um, um, got a chance to create um, the Black Farmers Market. Ah, okay. So <laughs> that's where that agriculture piece started to pick back in for us. That's where my connection and community mm-hmm. um, was there. Um and so with Black Farmers Market, which their mission um, is, um, it's around it's around the uh, inspiration, just being able to inspire uh, self-sufficient Black, uh, uh, self-sufficient communities that support and protect Black farmers and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had an opportunity to beta test, do some, some beta, some beta programming, um, <laughs> with doing quarterly markets uh, okay. um, within the Durham area, which we were like, you know what? We're going to contact some farmers. We're going to see how this happens, you know? Um, luckily, our first time around, we had, I want to say, 14 farmers that we connected with. Um, and we were like, you know, we're going to do this at the NC Mutual building, uh, which for us had... Um, just significance and representation, uh, NC Mutual, uh, when you want to talk about Black banking um, within the South, but especially Durham, it, that, that building means a lot. Um, and so we said, you know what, we can do this in a parking lot and see what happens. And hundreds and hundreds of people showed up. Yes. So, which was great. Um, (laughs) And we found out through that this process that this is a need uh, because a lot of the farmers that were out weren't going to the markets. A big part of that is that as much as there's a political game around just agriculture in general in um, in America, Mm -hmm. that political game also plays in our farmers markets too. Like when you talk about, you know application fees, when you talk about booth fees, when you talk about all these policies and procedures that in a lot of ways uh, moves Black farmers out of the idea of even participating. So um, Black Farmers Market, um, amazing opportunity for us Um, around that, even that time, I met our other partner, Gabrielle E.W. Carter, um, who's, um, she is a um, a culture uh, preservationist. She's a chef. She's a farmer. (laughs) Um, If you look at episode two of of, um, High on the Hog, she's actually in episode two. Mm -hmm. And so she's the farmer. um, She's the uh, individual that owns land that does a dinner on her land uh, out at Apex, talks a little bit about her family and the loss of land within that space. So if you get a chance to check it out, check it out. Uh, I've checked it out four or five times. I've cried every time I watched it. Um, And so through that time, we have, we started to build community within um, just ourselves, just us three. Um, And so um, I remember, so speeding up to March, um, March 12th, it was March 12th, 2020. <laughs> um, so Gabby was in the store, in a grocery store at all places, 
uh, and she ran into one of our friends uh, uh, that owned a restaurant in downtown. This was like at the beginning of everything, right? <laughs> everything shutting down the whole night, right? Mm-hmm. So Gabby was in um, this grocery store and she was having this conversation with uh, one of our friends that owns this amazing Ethiopian restaurant, Gorsha. Um, um, just, you know, just catching up, you know, right. talking to, you know, at this point, family, you know, and, and so what started out as a very light conversation turned extremely heavy because mm-hmm. a lot of restaurants at that time were having to make serious decisions on, because it went from, all right, we're going to be down for maybe about a week to, all right, we don't know when this is going to end. Yeah. Um, and so the conversation started about, you know, cutting staff and cutting contracts and things of that nature. And so what Gabby and so Gabby came from that situation with an idea. Mm. Um, and Gabby went to Derek. Uh, one thing about Gabby and Derek is that they're actually, they're not only partners within Tallgrass, they're also partners in life. So um, Gabby and Derek um, started brainstorming around what can we do for these restaurants. And so the idea was to create a newsletter Mm -hmm. for around Black restaurants within the Triangle area and how can you, you support them throughout this pandemic, like who's open, who's doing carry out, how can you donate to certain places, the whole nine. So as they were trying to figure this out, the conversation got deeper into, if this is happening again to our, if this is happening to our restaurants, what is actually happening to the supply chain? Mm-hmm. And so the first individuals in the supply chain we thought about were our most vulnerable, which was our farmers. And so Gabby and um, Derek started um, making a list of farmers to reach out to um, just to kind of see, just to kind of check in. Yeah. And so did that for, you know, about um, 10 days or so. Um and um, I remember on um, March 21st, 2020, and the reason I remember this the most is this is the day of my wedding. This is the day I got married. <laughs> um, and Derek was there. Derek, Derek was at our ceremony. We, uh, we, of course, you know, had a large ceremony plan, but, you know, COVID had other plans. Um, but love also had a plan in itself, too. And so we were continuing, we were going to get 321-2020 was our day. Like, like, like that, regardless, that's what we were going to do. So we had a small ceremony and Derek was there. And um, because Derek is also, Derek's an educator. He's a photographer. He's like Renaissance man, always. (laughs) And so Derek actually shot our wedding. Um, And so as I was outside talking with Derek, as he was loading things, I was helping him load things the question came up was, yo, and this is, this is exactly how Derek said it. He was like, yo, so you want to start a CSA? And so, (laughs) and I was like, tell me more about this whole idea. And he was like, you know, what do you think about starting a CSA for black farmers? And at that point I was like, I'm game. So the next day we had our first meeting. This was 322-2020. Um, and we created our first box uh, for purchase mm-hmm. um, by um, March 3rd, 2020. Mm-hmm. And so the thing, the thing that happened is that we had an opportunity to start talking with, with our farmers to kind of figure out what were their needs at this point. A lot of them were having situations cut. Mm-hmm. and um, we just needed they they needed a place for you know they needed the marketplace you know they had contracts being cut they ha- they're having to cut staff they have food that's in the ground like March is a very important time within the farming season 
And so you having, you, you know, you have this transition process going on. You have food that's in the ground and needs to go somewhere. You have things that you need to plant, but you also don't know what, what's going to happen next with this pandemic. Yes, so yes. what I need to do is make sure that this food in the ground, I can get out to people from a marketplace standpoint. Mm -hmm. So they said that we need a solid, something that we can stand on from a marketplace. And so we were like, let's put together a CSA and see how this works out. Uh, first box that we did, we limit ourselves to 35 boxes mm -hmm. uh, just to say, hey, this is what we're going to do. Let's see how this goes. 35 boxes went very, very fast. And so from there, we scaled up. At our peak last summer, we did, I want to say our peak was 377 boxes. Oh, wow. Uh, and so it's a biweekly um, CSA box where we have the opportunity to curate with uh, curate a box by working with black farmers within the area mm -hmm. um, uh, within like the, the surrounding five counties um, to put together a bi-weekly box that people can pick up in four different locations. Mm -hmm. um, but um, the cool thing about this CSA is that um, what makes us different than everybody else, well, I wouldn't say everybody else, but a majority of the CSAs is that we purchase, which a lot of them, they purchase wholesale. Like they purchase, are they either coming from one farm? And so they're already running up wholesale prices on everything. Mm -hmm. And so they're capable of selling their boxes, sometimes extremely, now I would say extremely cheaper than ours, but they do have, there is a difference in some of the pricing for our box than other boxes. One of the reasons why is that we purchase wholesale quantities for retail prices mm. from our farmers. So what we're doing is we are putting more in the hands of our farmers. We're putting their worth, as we call it, as we're putting their worth in their hands as we are purchasing from them. Um, since the beginning of the pandemic, we have put over $160,000 in the hands, directly in the hands of farmers. Oh. Um, There's some farmers out there that say that, um, like I know there's a farmer that we work with um, out in Roxborough um, um, that says that, he has um, he has gone up. He's up forty six percent from last year, and a big part of it is that I have a marketplace that is built in and it's consistent, right? Um, and so, and that's one of the like the most important things for us is creating that are helping our farmers create that net. Um, that gives them that opportunity to focus on, on what they do best mm -hmm. and that's grow the food. <laughs> right. And so, uh, you know, just being able to, to just facilitate that marketplace while easing the strain of distribution capacities for individual farmers. We work with smaller farms, like a lot of the farmers we work with are smaller farms. And it's really, really tough to not only grow, but also sell, get out to the, the um get out to the farmers markets um try to do contracts things of that nature it's really tough mm. and so a lot of them end up just selling to larger farms uh. and getting pennies on the dollar mm -hmm. um so what this does is it gives it, it eases that capacity it also for farmers um we have the opportunity of sharing individual systems for direct purchase in hopes that for uh, to form a relationship between the individual consumer and the farmer. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, those are like the things that we spend a lot of our time doing is making sure that we're capable of providing not only that information, but, but also being able to connect farmers with resources. Um, and um, and a lot of that is just around just expanding just this whole identity around self-determining food economies uh, for us. 
Um, and one of the most important things that we do is that we provide this idea, these, uh, we provide this mode or vessel for fresh fruit food uh, for communities that need them the most. We, um, we team up a lot with a lot of nonprofit organizations um, as we've come into a lot of grants um, and we've come into a lot of opportunities where we're capable of providing for community. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, you know, like, you know, I think one of the things that I love, like our, one of my favorite quotes is by Leah Penniman, and I'm probably going to butcher this quote, uh, but it's completely fine. You'll probably get the point. Uh, we see, let me see, we see that when Black farmers, just said, we see when, when Black farmers are striving, uh, we're, we are more likely to get the food to the people that need it uh, the most in our communities. Mm. And so through that, we've been able to team up with um, different um, organizations. One that stick out to me is uh, the Mustard Seed Project. It's, um, it's a woman out of East Durham um, which East Durham is, from an economic standpoint, is on the lower end of Durham's financial, um, when he looks at Durham's financial rankings on, you know, um, household income, uh, East Durham um, has, has always for, I mean, not always, but for a very long time, has been that community. Um, she started a program a few years ago around feeding probably a hundred kids a day mm -hmm. um, out of her own home. Wow. Which is wow. Like it's crazy. <laughs> um, and so throughout the pandemic, she has moved to feeding families. Mm -hmm. And so what we've been able to do is partner with groups like Carolina Farm Stewardship, um, which we've been able to use grant money to um, provide an ad additional 100 meals are 100 boxes mm. um, every other week. Wow. And so for her to be able to cook, um, for her to be able to hand out things, um, these are, you know, this is our way of, of, of making sure that we're continuing to provide for the communities that we work with. Um, and we've done that from anything from Student U program, which is um, uh, first year college students. Uh, well, first year, um, um, not first year college students, but uh, low social, low social economical um, uh, families that um, are um, first generation college mm -hmm. students. And um, looking to trying to get students from transitioning from high school to college, um, providing boxes for families, uh, providing boxes uh, for a group called the Renee, uh, where we've had uh, an opportunity for to support women that are going through pregnant, women of color that are going through pregnancy and postpartum. Mm -hmm. um, and so just, just trying to figure out, you know, how can we spread um this wealth because we also understand that that food is food food is medicine mm -hmm. um and that's how food was introduced to me it was very very funny how you know my papa would easily say something of, of this nature like you're going to need a farmer before you need a doctor or a lawyer yes <laughs> and so um and it's true like mm -hmm. farmers were our original medicine men and women Yes. and people our original medicine people and so <laughs> um but yeah um that's who we are we are um a small but mighty group that's trying to figure out how can we create space um to not only give the narratives of the many, many heroes within our community from, our, from an agricultural standpoint, but also tell the story about what has gone on through Black agriculture um, and talk about the things as, you know, from the land loss, the difference, you know, from, you know, farm wages, you know, talk about, you know, 
um, these things not being an accident. Like, you know, since, you know, since emancipation, Black farmers have had to fight for a share of this country's fertile ground, uh, do racist policies, land thefts. And this is all stuff that was guided by the federal government. Yes. And yes. so um, we're just trying to do our little part within this world. And um, it started out as a passion project, but it's turned into a mission in so many ways. Yes, I love that. Well, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to delve more into this conversation. You're listening to Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. This is Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Sana, and I'm here with Gerald C. Harris, one of the co-creators of the Tall Grass Food Box. And before the break, Gerald was sharing with us kind of how this CSA came into fruition and I love how well of course there's so many things that had to happen for this to come about but it really hinged on this question of hey you know like you want to create a CSA <laughs> and I love it where it's just like yeah that's what me and my friends are talking about like hey you want to create a CSA <laughs> Yeah. and it's just like and y'all did <laughs> we've been uh we've been um building and flying the plane at the same time um since the beginning of this thing you know yeah um, so yeah it, it's been yeah, it's been fun it's been fun <laughs> to learn we've learned a lot um you know stepping into this world of entrepreneurship yes. um, not knowing what any of this work was going to really be um because it's a different side of it's a different side of the business it's a i mean it's a it's a really a different side of the work um and so we've definitely learned a lot over this past year and some change yes but i love how you know even just in your story and i'm sure for your um for your partners for their you know background as well which you alluded to some of it you know it's all these experiences throughout your lives that really led and opened up to this moment where y'all could come together and fill a need um so even just thinking about you know your papa and his experiences growing up on the farm and it's interesting because as you were talking I was thinking about, you know, my dad grew up on a farm and, you know, all his siblings, <laughs> you know, worked on the farm yeah. and a lot of my uncles, you know, pig farmers, dairy farmers, but in thinking about that difference between white farmers and black farmers and land ownership, like almost all of my dad's side of the family still owns farmland acres yep. and acres of farmland still active again dairy farm pig farm corn of course like major crop and then also thinking about family members that I know that are working in these big agriculture companies creating genetically modified seed like all of this crazy stuff <laughs> yes and so it's just such a difference because even just thinking about my family and the land that they were able to retain, right? And as you alluded to prior to the prior to the break, just thinking about the discrimination and the very purposeful way that Black farmers were stripped of their land, and we still see settlements um, being handed down and also trying to be blocked <laughs> because yes. of those policies and practices of the USDA. Yep. Uh, but just thinking about how all that factors into not only just land ownership, but the wealth. But the that wealth is, that comes. <laughs> right. It's crazy. Um, I mean, just to think about, it, I know that a lot of people bring up uh, when they when they talk about this this conversation, and 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 there's some people like, why do you all keep looking to beat people over the head with these statistics? I said, well, these statistics are the truth they're the reality like when you think about uh the 1920 census always comes up like anytime you you read an article or you go in depth about um just black farming black land ownership the first thing that always comes up is the 1920 census um so when you you, you know um 
because it shows like from the 1920 census to now um, how black people have largely been expelled from U.S. agricultural landscape. So 1920, you're talking about close to a million. I think it's like 900. I think the count was 949, 889 black farmers worked on 41.4 million acres of land, mm-hmm. um, which makes which makes up um, a seventh of farm owners. And so when you think about that number now, when you think about the number I'm about to give you, the number today, um, only about 45,000 of them remain. So that's the number, 45,000, and which makes up just 1.4%, around 1.4% of the nation's farm owners. Um, and they're tending to, I would say, a very scantly 4.7, I think the, the last time I checked, it's like 4.7 million acres of land, which if you're doing the math, the rough math, you're talking about a 90% land loss. Mm, 90%. Um, 90%. <laughs> 90% land loss. Um, Black farmers is also like when you think about you know, just from a making a living standpoint, you know, Black farmers um, like make less than, like from an annual, this is the annual average. So Black farmers make less than 40,000 annually compared with um, their white counterparts, they're making close to $190,000 annually. Uh, which a big portion of that is um, um, probably because the average acre is about one, probably about one quarter Mm -hmm. uh, that of white farmers. Mm -hmm. Um, And like these things, again, like I said, they didn't happen by accident. These things, uh, you, you know, since, you know, emancipation, you know, black farmers have been in the struggle to get their fertile land, um, um and keep that fertile land um a lot of that being taken from them because of policies because of land thefts a great example of seeing that is seeing how uncle andrew uh, uncle uh, gabrielle's um <laughs> great uncle uh uncle andrew house was just destroyed mm. because of now a highway being built a a highway going from a two-lane road to a seven-lane highway has split their family land Mm. um and there's nothing that they could do about it um and so um to just be over there a, a, a couple of years ago and seeing uncle andrew walk across be able to walk across the street tend his uh tend his land and the crazy thing about where they're at the land when they when they received this land it was not fertile Mm -hmm. at all they grew they nurtured this land and now the government um um has taken this land from them Mm -hmm. um and now um uncle andrew's living out in holly springs which is not that far but it's far enough that, that they didn't have a spring season of growing mm. uh, because it was just too much. Yeah. And so just being able to, to just really just wrap your head around that there's so many other Uncle Andrews out there. This is not just happening. This is just not some some fixed incident that just happens to this one person that I that I know and I've heard many stories like this mm-hmm. um and there are many people that are fighting a, a on a um a daily basis to fight to get their land back mm-hmm. and um fight to keep their land and um, I see them in GoFundMe's. I see them all the time, you know, um, like just going to land loss prevention, like the land loss prevention project, 
just going to their website, you see stuff like this on a daily basis. You see Black Family Land Trust talk about this all the time. Soul Fire Farms talks about this all the time. Um, and I just find it, it, it happens more often to people that look like me. Mm-hmm. And the government has played a huge part of this. Um, and of course, right now, you know, it looks like they're trying to do right or trying to right some wrongs. I wouldn't even say do right. I would say right some wrongs. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, there's still a lot of red tape around policies and, and things that they're creating that there are some people that would never see um, what they're owed in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um And that's where I think things like community engagement plays a huge part of how we navigate. Um, And, you know, when I think about community engagement, I think about, you know, the idea of this process of working collaboratively with and through groups of people uh, affiliated with special interests, um, addressing issues affecting the well-being of those people. Um, I think that uh, where traditional um, executive led approaches are ineffective. Uh, things like community engagement is uh, important in that space of, of a collaborative approach um, in a way of trying to design and deliver services. Um, and uh, like, you know, when you think about, you know, the complexity of issues of any given community where tradition, where traditional approaches um, have been ineffective and non-inclusive, uh in the extreme community engagement um uh community engagement for me it 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 enables uh the understanding of community needs and aspirations in a place where sometimes policy doesn't pick up and actually where i think our government actually can learn some things um and so when you have programs like um example, uh, Tallgrass Food Box, um, take root, people start to pay attention. Um, uh, the amount of individuals that are government-led programs that have, that have reached out to us since the beginning of this thing, it was like, y'all have some really cool stuff going on. They all say, it was like, yeah, it's, but we're not but it's not rocket science that we're doing. We're just paying attention to the community that we not only live in, but the community that we're trying to make better. Mm-hmm. And so the stuff that we're doing isn't like, is like, is not deep. Um, uh, but I think the most important thing is that it's creating opportunities in, 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 in spaces. And most importantly, it's us trying to make or trying to figure out a solution for the broader community, mm-hmm. which if people, if I think, I think if our government, um, if our government agencies took the time to understand what that actually means as they are creating policy for a community without being in a community, it's going to always fail. Yes. I mean, that's the key right there when you're trying to create policies for a community that you're not a part of, that you're trying to input your own ideas or perspectives or bias onto your policies are never going to work. And I think that's why so many people, I mean, Tallgrass Food Box is doing such amazing work because it is community-centered, community-led and for the community and not for, you know, ideas of what the community is or should be, but rather what the needs actually are. And so for folks who have that top-down approach, it is new and innovative to them, unfortunately. It's, uh, yeah, it's like, oh, this is great stuff. Yes, it is. Yes, we are looking at what our community needs and that's it. And we are creating educational solutions around that. And what I mean by educational solutions is just looking at what best practices are and measuring them with the needs of the culture, the needs and the culture of the environment that we are working within. And so. 
I love that. I love that. And I and I, I am actually really happy that folks are paying more attention to the work that you're doing, but the work that other folks around the country are doing as well around sustainability, around Black farmers, around agriculture. Um, Gerald, thank you so much for being here with us this morning. It has truly been a pleasure to catch up with you and to be able to share with all of our listeners the good work that y'all are doing with Tall Grass Food Box. Thank you. Uh, this has been a great opportunity and um, um, I look forward to more conversations like this and um and I, I think it's so important uh, to continue this conversation and be nimble as we do that, uh, because as we evolve, our needs evolve too. And so um, if you ever, you know, if you're ever in the area, if you're ever in North Carolina, if you're ever in Durham, let, you know, let me know, let us know. Uh, uh, and there's ways you can do that if, you know, of course, you know how to get in contact with me. But, you know, outside of that, you know, you can follow us at um, Tallgrass Food Box on Instagram. Um, it's at Tallgrass Food Box. Uh, we're also can be found uh, at Tallgrass on Facebook, Tallgrass Food Box on Facebook. Um, and yeah, just shoot us a, you know, shoot us a DM. You can email us at hello at tallgrassnc.com. Um, and, you know, um, show us, you know, show us support, you know, buy merch. Uh, <laughs> we should have some stuff coming up pretty soon. Uh, people are really excited about our new merch lines that are coming out. Um, you can donate boxes. You can donate funds. Um, send it out. Tell all your people about us, uh, especially if they're in the area. Um, but, yeah, we just want to figure out ways that we can grow and build together. Um, so everything counts every every everybody in this work counts and so anything that you do to try to create that space of of black food sovereignty and, and um most importantly i think in this space of circulating the black dollar within our communities does that and so absolutely thank you Thank you again to Gerald C. Harris of Tall Grass Food Box in Durham. It was such a pleasure to just think more about, again, community, sustainability, um, food sovereignty, you know, topics that we've kind of touched on before uh, for folks who've been listening to the show for a while, but it was great to really talk to someone who is really creating a model that other cities can follow as we're thinking about investing in Black farmers. Y'all, this has been Let's Grab Coffee on WYXR 91.7 FM. Can't wait to spend another Saturday morning with you. We'll be back next week.